Today is Global Missions Sunday, and, and um, I, think, I think the best way to begin is to simply sharing our mission statement here at Sovereign Grace Church for Global Missions. So if you were to go to the Global Missions Handbook, right after a passage from Habakkuk, you're going to read this. The mission of Sovereign Grace Church is to make disciples who delight in, display, and declare the gospel. If you remember Sovereign Grace Church, you've heard that before. We go on. We desire to see mission take root in our neighborhoods, in cities as churches are planted, and throughout the nations as we seek to send others in order to see Jesus build his church and disciples are made. The strength of the church does not exist in its seeding capacity, but its sending capacity. By God's grace, we pray our sending capacity will continue to increase as disciples are made and sent out to delight in, display, and declare the gospel throughout the world. There are several things I could say about this mission statement, but I want to point out two. First, this mission statement is an extension of what we already believe as a church. We are missionaries who exist to make disciples, to delight in, display, and declare the gospel. That's the imperative from Matthew 28, 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Second, Sovereign Grace Church exists to be a part of God building his church right here and around the world. And by God's grace, I think we can do both. We can do both. And this morning, it is my joy to allow God's word to equip, to equip us to be a part of fulfilling this mission statement. But I think before diving into God's word, I think it's appropriate to ask this question. Why do we need to concern ourselves with global missions in the first place? Why do we need to do that? I want to read to you a story from a devotional that I read this last week. In God's providence, it coincided with this message. It's from this devotional by Timothy Laniac. And it's a 40-day 40, 40 devotional, and it's, it, it really struck to the core of why we do global missions here at Sovereign Grace Church. Here it is. Timothy says this. It was 20 years ago that my wife, Maureen, and I spent a memorable winter in China meeting with members of an underground church. We carried in our backpacks Christian books and tapes that would be useful for a portable seminary. Chinese Bibles took up most space. When we met our first contact, she informed us that we would need to speak in coded language. She said, just refer to what you have brought as bread. That night, we served bread to a hungry pastor who had traveled for days from a remote province where his whole church had been jailed. He was hoping for bread to take back to his discouraged flock. The unforgettable look of gratitude on his face reminds me that this world's only source of life and hope is God's word. Like I said, I had not anticipated reading that story the same day I was working on this message. But I gotta tell you, it wrecked me. This world's only source of life and hope is God's word and the person we read about in God's word. Throughout the world, there are 16,547 people groups. 
16,547 people groups. 6,693 are unreached. According to the Joshua Project, where I get some of these statistics, it says an unreached or least reached people group is a, a people is a people group among which there is no indigenous community of believer, believing Christians with adequate numbers and resources to evangelize this people group without outside assistance. Statistically, percentage-wise, that's 40% of people groups that have absolutely no gospel presence. None. Let me break it down by population. Again, according to the Joshua Project, there are approximately 7.38 billion people in the world. Of this number, 3.11 billion people, as of right now, if they die, are going straight to hell. That is 42.1% of the current world population. And for the sake of brevity, I won't give you the statistics of people that have a minimal gospel presence. I'll just compound that number. If you love God and you desire to love others, these statistics, I hope, pierce your heart because it's God's love for you that should cause you to look at these numbers not as mere statistics, but people. You know, my head, I understand $3.11 billion, right? You think of a national debt or something like that. I understand that. But 3.11 billion people. Um, in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, John Piper has said, missions exist because worship doesn't. I really like that. I think he's right. 3.11 billion at least people without, uh, they are not worshiping their creator in China, Thailand, Bolivia, other places, and in Burnsville, people are worshiping fake gods. They're, they're worshiping themselves, or they're just simply indifferent. And this is leading them to permanent separation from the living God. Therefore, Christian, I, I am here to tell you this morning that mobilizing people for the mission of God is urgent. And God's desire, I think, is to equip you to live out the very reason why you exist. To bring him glory wherever you go by being a gospel witness. We want to bring God glory wherever we go by proclaiming the name of Jesus. I want to add one footnote to what I've said thus far. This message isn't just about those who will get on a plane, go to a country that is not their own, to go into a culture that is not their own. I think this message is for every person in this room who calls themselves a disciple of Jesus Christ. Being a missionary is not location-specific. Being a missionary is not location-specific. Just because you're not going to Afghanistan, for example, to display the glory of God by loving Afghanis with the love of Christ does not mean you're not on mission. Your mission is either right across the street, or it's in the office, or it's in Burnsville, where Somalians are moving to in droves. The nations are coming right here, right in front of us. Your mission, if you're not getting on a plane your mission is also supporting this church's effort to send people to places where the gospel can be proclaimed. 
So I will highlight global missions, but this, this message, be rest assured, is for all of us. It's for all of us. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to direct our attention to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, verses 36 to 49. And I want to ask, what is Jesus saying to us about the importance of the Bible and the necessity of the Holy Spirit when it comes to missions? I think he addresses both of those for us this morning. I think what we will see in this passage is a, is a natural progression in the, in the text that goes from seeing Christ in the Bible to understanding the necessity to declare to other people what you have seen. We can think of Luke 24, 36 to 49 as one of three acts of a play that begins actually back in verse 1 of chapter 24. So in brief, I want to explain those first two acts and then we'll dial into act 3. The first act is verses 1 to 12. It's about Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, encountering angels at the tomb. This means we're reading about a post-crucifixion, post-resurrection narrative of Jesus. That would be Act 1, Act 2, verses 13 to 35. We see two individuals encountering Jesus on the road to Emmaus. One of them is named Clopas. While on the road, Jesus shares the scriptures with them. And then later, while they're breaking bread... Jesus opens their eyes to understand the scriptures. That was Act 2. Now Act 3, which is where we find ourselves today, is the place where we read about Jesus appearing to his startled and perhaps confused disciples. And as we will read and see, after confusion is the revelation of the gospel message to his disciples. In other words, Jesus as we will see, imparts faith to them by opening the eyes of their mind to the scriptures. And after Jesus gives them the gift of faith, we read about Jesus telling his disciples, guys, get on mission. It's time to get on mission. Jesus adds one more thing. Guys, you don't go alone. When you go on mission, you don't go alone. You have the Holy Spirit. So that, I'm actually just telling you the summary of the passage. So can't go home yet because I want to give you the substance of the passage. Because I think it's the substance that will equip us to be on mission for God. So let's begin reading in verse 36. We find where the third act begins. You can open your Bible. You can be on the text. The text will be on the screen behind me. Here's God's word to us. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened, and they thought they saw a spirit. And he, and he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. And he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me 
in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And I would just add this from Acts 1.8, which flows right after Luke 24, Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Let's pray for God's help this morning. Well, Father, as we've heard this morning already, we are needy people. My prayer this morning is that you would illuminate your word to us. As we look at your word, it would set hearts ablaze to reach the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that every person in this room would see that they have a part to play. And so, Holy Spirit, come, move upon us. May you be glorified as your word is preached and as the gospel is declared. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't want to linger long on verses 36 to 43, but notice the confusion amongst the disciples about the resurrected Christ. They responded to Jesus as if he was a spirit, verse 37. They had no idea what to think. Here's how one commentator vividly described the confusion in this act. With the sudden appearance of Jesus, the disciples gasped. Their eyes bulged, their skin crawled, and they saw what they took to be a ghostly apprehension of Jesus. It was indeed Jesus' voice that greeted them, Peace be with you. Peace on earth had all had been announced at the coming of Jesus, but they did not have much peace in their hearts, only scandalous disbelief. These hand-picked apostles were as foolish and slow of heart and confused as the Emmaus disciples had been. The reaction of the disciples, according to this commentator, involved gasping, bulge eyes, crawling skin. Their hearts were described as having scandalous disbelief. They were as foolish and slow as hard as those Emmaus Road disciples. Not exactly a, a flowery a description of those who were going to proclaim the gospel message to the nations. Now, the disciples had not yet believed in the resurrected Christ. That, that much is clear from this text. But notice this, out of love, Jesus met them right where they were at. He didn't dismiss them, he met with them. Jesus shows the disciples the holes in his hands and his feet. He says in verse 39, see my wounds, touch my wounds. And if that wasn't enough, Jesus asked the disciples for broiled fish to eat. Why? A mere ghost, spirit, or an angel isn't going to eat food. People eat food. Jesus is trying to show his hard-headed disciples that after the crucifixion, he rose from the grave. He says, guys, look 
see. And before throwing um, the disciples underneath the proverbial bus for the lack of faith, I, I can't help but think of the times I have succumbed to the same sin after trusting in Jesus, after being justified by God. I can't help but think about that. Lack of faith has inhibited me to get on mission from time to time with God. Lack of faith prevents Christians from crossing the street to reach their neighbors with the gospel. Lack of faith prevents Christians from showing a gospel seed to the barista at a, at a coffee shop. Lack of faith keeps us complacent and prevents us from taking gospel risks like obeying a call to an unreached people group or obeying a call to take care of orphans. Or pulling out the checkbook and saying, I know this doesn't make sense to non-Christians or to my leisure, but I'm going to support this church's gospel proclamation or that person's calling to the nations. And so the word to the disciples and to us from Jesus is faith. Have faith in a God who is bigger than you perceive now, Jesus provides the remedy for the lack of faith in the hearts of the disciples. And perhaps surprisingly, the, rem the remedy was not and still is not to see the holes in his hands and the holes in his feet. That's not the remedy. The remedy is found in the scriptures. Here's verses 44 and 45. Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about them in the, law of the in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. In verse 45, here's the clincher. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. These, these two verses, I think, are just profound. They are profound because we realize it's God who does the work to reveal the scriptures. Without a doubt, you've got to be looking at the scriptures. But the first step to understand the scriptures is actually imparted faith. And faith tells us the Bible is about Jesus. So I want to, I'm going to pause for a moment and, and actually make a global missions connection here. Because Jesus is talking about the importance of the word of God. The importance of the Bible should cause us to pray that every language on earth have a translated Bible. And that the church be active in teaching the Bible to those who don't have, frankly, the gluttony of resources that exist in the Western world. According to Wycliffe Bible Translators, this is their mission. They want to they get a Bible into every language throughout the world. They say there's 1,800 languages that have no translation of the Bible. 1,800 languages. Languages that are connected to people. The church needs more linguists who are able and willing to take on one of these languages with the goal of translating the Bible. And the Western world needs to be more involved to send its teachers and elders to train up future pastors, especially pastors in persecuted countries, because the living word is a fountain of living water that imparts faith. Jesus' statement in verses 44 these are my words. And in the Greek language, is actually an echo of a Hebrew phrase that is often repeated. These are the word, which these are the word in the, in the Old Testament is characterly used to introduce divine revelation or prophecy. The point Jesus is making in verse 
44, is that his words matter. It was the divine Son of God speaking about divine truths flowing from divine scripture. When Jesus says, these are my words, we are to listen. And these words of Jesus are not only consistent with the Old Testament, but the Old Testament is a witness to his crucifixion and resurrection. The Old Testament is about Jesus and the mission of God. There is no part of Scripture that does not bear witness to Jesus and the gospel message. No part. Here's another gospel writer's affirmation of this truth. Here's the Apostle John. He says, you search the Scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. This is Jesus talking. And it is they that bear witness about me. If you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he, Moses, wrote about me, Jesus. This is what Jesus opened the minds of the disciples to. The mission and message of God. It's not merely a New Testament message, but it reaches back to Genesis 1-1. And even reaches back even further to eternity past. The message we are to believe as Christians has been given to us in God's word. And as we will see in a few moments, this gospel message also reaches forward as the church stays on mission to proclaim the gospel and create disciples. Now let's take a, take a moment to look at the specifics of the gospel message. Luke wants to focus on three infinitives in the text. The first two infinitives are used to describe what has happened and then he gives us his third infinitive, which tells us what will happen and what is happening. Here are the first two in verse 46. Thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Let's take them one at a time. First, the suffering, suffering of Christ. If you want to go on mission with Jesus, these, these three infinitives matter. If you have been held captive by the suffering of Christ, then you can rightly go on mission to proclaim the suffering of Christ. I can't help but think of Isaiah 53. Here's just a redacted version of, of Christ's suffering in the Old Testament. You can just listen. I don't have it up there. He was despised. Jesus was despised and rejected by men. Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we esteemed him not. Surely Jesus has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted like a lamb that was led to the, to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent. He opened not his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Jesus has put him to grief. God has put him to grief. He poured out his soul to death. The message from Isaiah 53 in this first infinitive in verse 46 is that it was always part of God's plan to suffer on a cross for his people. Imagine telling that to a Muslim who is held captive by a distant God who only demands and offers no relationship. Imagine telling that to a Muslim. It's not in my notes, but I just got to share it. I've been working on this, this, this Muslim I've been interacting with pretty regularly now. And my goal is to get him to, he doesn't drink coffee, he drinks tea. And to get him to a coffee shop where we can drink tea. 
which is still foreign to me because I drink coffee, but I'll drink tea, and, and share with him what Christ has done by, by dying on a cross, by suffering for him. That message can be life-altering. It was a part of God's plan for Jesus to suffer on the cross, to break the power and the penalty of sin over the lives of, of his people. There is no Savior without suffering. When the suffering of Christ lands on you, how do you respond? Can you, can you think of 1.6 billion Muslims, 1.1 billion Hindus, a half billion Buddhists who have no category for God's suffering so that they can be forgiven of their sin? Whether it's the, the Somali Muslim living in Burnsville or the Somali Muslim living in Somalia, they need to know that Christ suffered to set them free from the bondage of sin. Listen, church, we exist to glorify God by proclaiming this gospel message, which includes the suffering of Christ. That was the first infinitive. Second infinitive is that Christ rose three days later. That's, again, verse 46. Because the way to swallow up death is to show that death can be defeated by a resurrection. Specifically, a resurrection by a man who did not deserve death. By his resurrection, we are able to have life. The priority of global missions at Sovereign Grace Church is to go to the nations and tell them, through Jesus, you can have life. Global missions, it's not just about feeding the hungry, caring for orphans, and ministering to the needy, although that, is, that surely is what we do. There's no doubt about it. But we, gotta, we do distinguish ourselves from a secular humanitarian organization. That's what we are not. We want to see people who are spiritually dead become spiritually alive by believing in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Yes, we will care for the poor. But when we give physical bread, we want to give spiritual bread. If we're going to provide clean water, we want to, we want to tell them about living water. Because the message of Christ's suffering and resurrection changes everything for a dark soul distant from God. It changes everything. Have I woken up McKenzie? No, good. And so the first two affinitives are suffer and rise, and the third is proclaimed. Verse 47. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Notice what Luke is doing in verses 46 and 47. In verse 46, we are to proclaim what Christ has done, suffered, died, rose from the grave. And now the message also includes a proclamation for people to respond to. And the message is, repent. Repent from your sin and be forgiven by God. We're not proclaiming a secular and temporal message. We're not, we're not proclaiming your best life now to the nations. We're not proclaiming make great decisions. We're not proclaiming become a better you, which is what people are reading all over this earth because they're starving for truth. The folks from Sovereign Grace who went to Zambia, 
might be able to testify to this. When we were walking through the mall in Nadola, Zambia, I saw in the middle of a hallway a bunch of books for sale. I'm always going to gravitate toward the books. I stopped to look and naturally I found myself toward the, the faith and spirituality section. And all I saw were books about the prosperity gospel, which is a false gospel that gives false hope. I, I asked my Zambian friend, Wilbrod, who has preached at this pulpit on Matthew 28, are there any, are there, are there any other books he said that the prosperity gospel has the greatest influence in Zambia. The majority of people in Zambia are hearing a prosperity gospel preached, and they're reading a prosperity gospel. Even in Zambia, an alleged Christian country, according to the government, you will find people who are being led astray from the true gospel to a false version of Christianity. And I'm grateful for my, my brother, Will Broad, for being a voice speaking true Christianity by proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. This is why Sovereign Grace Church took as many suitcases as possible, we filled them up with resources, and we gave them to Will Broad so he can train pastors with the truth. I have so many stories about global missions, especially as it pertains to proclaiming the gospel, and I'll give you just one more. Maybe. Um, this... This, this, this actually, this story rocked my world. Um, in 2006, as a relatively young Christian, I went to Afghanistan to help care for a church member serving in Kabul. I was basically tagging along with the senior pastor at the time. Right before I was supposed to get married, <laughs> Sharice was, was a little nervous. And uh, on a hot, sunny day, uh, we were making our way to an Afghani bookstore. Again, books. And as I sat in the taxi cab, God, the Holy Spirit, began to show me the great need of the gospel to be proclaimed to the nations. Sitting in rush hour traffic in Kabul, all I could think about was every person that my eyes began to scan, just, just scanned all the people, were likely going to hell apart from a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Then my thoughts went to the entire population of Afghanistan, 32 million most going to hell unless they repent and turn to Jesus. And then I began to think about decades and generations where a different name has been preached. Just compounding the numbers that were already in my head. Christian mission exists because other names are being preached and people are going to hell. And it's the message of the word which we have got to proclaim to the nations. So, faith in God gives us the ability to understand the Bible. We saw Jesus do that with the disciples when he opened their mind to understand the scriptures. And as a result, Christians are to proclaim the gospel revealed in the Bible and here's another crucial factor in our gospel proclamation. We are to proclaim in the power of the Holy Spirit. All this equals gospel witness. Here are verses 48 and 49. Jesus says, You are my witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. 
The promise and the power from on high is a reference, of course, to the Holy Spirit. Acts 1.8 uses similar language. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. These verses are a prophetic reference to what you read in Acts 2. In the entire book of Acts, where God dispensed the Holy Spirit to the church in a unique way that had not been done before. And the church is commissioned to be the primary means to proclaim the gospel. And these verses tell us that wherever you go, across the street or across the globe, God is with you. Verse 49, we, we read that we are clothed with power from on high. It's, it's like a robe that covers us. This is reminiscent of the same language that Luke uses in the beginning of his gospel when Mary was promised to receive the Holy Spirit and become the mother of the Savior of the world. Same language, power from on high. And so I, when, I, when I read that, I'm like, so let me, let me get this straight. The same power that came upon Mary also raised Jesus from the dead now surrounds me like a robe, and even more so is in me? Wow. I can go on mission with that. From verse 49 and Acts 1, I want, to, I want to apply these verses to those who are local missionaries, which are most of you here, and the few of you who will be going global. You'll get on the plane for you local folks first, myself included. This is just my sense in terms of how to apply this passage this morning. The power of the Holy Spirit can overcome what I perceive to be the chief barrier of gospel proclamation. Fear. It's fear. Your fear can squash any opportunity to share the gospel at work, at school, while you're on a vacation with your family members. I just sense this is a place where, as a church, we, we need to be encouraged. The mission field is right in front of our eyes, and God, the Holy Spirit, is in us to remove the fear and to guide us in our gospel proclamation. The, the nations are right at our doorstep. The nations are right here. Now, for you, glo you global folks, there's a few of you in here. When you receive the power of the Holy Spirit, you receive a God who would be with you at all times, even when you, when you feel lonely. I've known enough missionaries to know the temptation that they have toward loneliness. The power of the Holy Spirit, here's my word to you. The power of the Holy Spirit will sustain you as you seek the face of Jesus. The power of the Holy Spirit will comfort you in your darkest time. In the power of the Holy Spirit, you will be sustained after hours, days, and months of laboring to be a faithful gospel witness. You've got to remember this truth. When you're feeling lonely, God is with you. He's with you. Oh, man, God... God God is so kind to us. He is so kind. He's so kind to give us his word which tells us about the good news, about the gospel. So kind to give us the Holy Spirit who bears witness to the gospel. We, my friends, listen, we, my friends, we have the upper hand. 
We have the upper hand as we witness to the nations. We have absolutely nothing to fear. Nothing. 